The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join the volunteers by the kids zone sign. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them. It's not you, it's me. There you go. Um, Good morning. That is very, uh, a lot of us were just like that. We're trying to get to where we're going, just like that Ironman traffic, but we all made it. Uh, my name is Ben, and I'm on staff here at Restoration, and we're glad you're here with us this morning as we're kind of landing the plane on this uh, sermon series that we have been in in Romans 8. And we asked the question, what does the empty tomb mean? And there's really no better place than Romans 8 that answers that. That the, the things that Jesus has purchased for you in the Easter story are reality because of Romans 8. And, and Romans 8 sheds light on that. And so we see that Jesus in his empty tomb brings sanity in our life where there is insanity. And this morning we'll look where sanity is brought in the seemingly senselessness. The seemingly senselessness. Because what Paul says here is in the context of suffering, uh, you uh, have a God that's working everything for your good. That God is working everything for your good. And as you hear that, you are probably like Charlie Brown, and you all you hear is the teacher of wah, 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 wah. It's easy to glaze over and kind of just have everything go in one ear and out the other. Because this is maybe, possibly, it's, it's on the Rushmore at least, but maybe the, one of the most quoted scriptures ever are out there. If not just the top four. And if anything, it's been overused, but it maybe probably has been misused and misapplied. And what Paul wants us to do here is understand that these words are not supposed to be recklessly uh, applied as a spiritual veneer over hard things. What Paul here wants us to understand is that the God of all things, when he gets near you and I, goodness then ensues. When the God of all things, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the God who has you and I in mind as his beloved, when he gets near us and the things in our world, goodness ensues. And everything in this passage, and there's much in this passage, and we won't talk about everything, uh, everything in this passage attests to that very thought. Goodness being a part of God and a part of everything he does in this world and in you. And so with that in mind, we'll see three things. We'll see the God of goodness, the story of goodness, and the process of goodness. The God, the story, the process. Uh, But with that all in mind, and as we look at towards the end of Romans 8, let's go to that very God in prayer as we ask him to move. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you this very day all um, longing to know 
uh, are you good? Are you good? And, and if not just that, maybe we can go one more step and, and say, can I trust you if you are good? Can I trust what you're up to in my life? Can I trust uh, the things that uh, I can't understand? And yet I've been told this news that you work all things for my good. This very day, King Jesus, would you open up our hands where we have control? And Lord, let us feel your power wash over us as you write our story And it is one marked with goodness, even when there's seemingly senselessness in it. We pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen. Uh, So first this morning, we see the God of goodness, the God of goodness. Now, to understand that there's goodness being worked in your life, we have to think about the worker of it. If there is goodness in all things that God works for you, uh, what, who's the worker? What's the worker like of that goodness? We need to understand that God is somebody who only knows how to operate with goodness. He only knows goodness because he is goodness. He's the fullness of it. Everything that goodness is, he is. God didn't get this idea of goodness because he saw it. Goodness got its idea from God because he is goodness. Everything a part of who he is, is good. He is the definition, the fullness, the, the wellspring of goodness, which is why in Galatians 5, it talks about when, when Jesus gets a part of your life and Holy Spirit begins to move, what happens? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things over time become realities because when God gets near you, you become and you get the things that are a part of him. You are changed. And one of those things is goodness. As a, he's a God of goodness. And for him to act any other way would be contrary, but also would be cruel. And yet we see the goodness of God and actually how he is not cruel. Because in Matthew 7, Jesus wants to take this curtain and kind of pull it open a little bit for us to see exactly what God is like. Kind of this Wizard of Oz moment. Let's see exactly what this God is like that's orchestrating everything. And Jesus says, Matthew 7, uh, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. He's telling us, pray, and God will generously give to you. Treat others with with a, a selfless ethic, because actually that's exactly what the good God does. But in all of it, he's saying, you don't just have access to him in prayer, and you shouldn't just treat people nice. The God of all things longs to flow everything he has to his people. Give everything 
with generosity because it says, how much more, if, the, if you don't know how to give good things, he knows how to give good things. Matthew 7 is telling us the generous heart of the goodness of God is for you. And Paul in Romans 8 is saying the exact same thing. That goodness is the only thing that is allowed to be your outcome if you are in Christ. And if you want to put it on the screen, it says, Romans 8, 28, And we know that for all, or for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God in his power can't not let goodness be your lot. He can't not let goodness be a part of your story. Remember, this is in the context of suffering. And so when we hear about there is a good God, and then we look at our lives and we see there is suffering, there can be a dissonance. And oftentimes when we hold those two things, we can easily slip into what's called a double trial. There's this trial of why are you letting me go through this God, and are you even good God? Because remember, this is a relational thing that Paul is trying to build into us. The, the fact that you belong to God and God belongs to you. And like any relationship, when there's friction, when there's tension, when there is um, even rigor, you can wonder, yes, the transgression hurts, but, but do they really love me? It can soak deep down into you into questioning the entire relationship. And Paul here wants to say and make it very clear the God of goodness will work all things for good. And it's supposed to be a comforting and clarifying thing that the God who says, I'm working good for you, is himself the measure, the ruler, the definition of goodness. And because there's a God of goodness, everything begins to fall into place. Now, that's a bit of a theological primer. And you may wonder why that has nothing of note for me now. Thanks for all that good knowledge. Well, I've got this and this and this going on in my life. And they are not good. And Paul actually begins to move on and sees the implications of these good truths and how they land in the street level of our lives. And that's what we see in the second thought, the story of goodness, the story of goodness. Because as this God of goodness writes a story, and he makes all things, everything, all things into good, not all things are good. He turns everything and, and, and wields and shapes everything into good for you. But that does not mean those things are good in and of themselves. Cancer is not good. Car wrecks are not good. The way you've been treated as a young, moldable age and you were taken advantage of, that's not good. The words that you've said that have shaped you and formed you in a negative light and you were mistreated, that's not good. The all things that Paul talks about, we're not supposed to say, it's okay, it's all good, it's going to be okay. We are supposed to look exactly at the things that are unjust and bad and wrong and evil and say, the Lord will do something with it, even though it is not good. It's okay to call not good, good, because God is the one who's writing the story of good. And in verse 28 and 29, it says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, the hope of the Christian life is just that, that you will be made and shaped and formed just like Jesus. The way Jesus is now, you will be one day. That's the hope of the Christian life, and it's a, it's a hope in that it's a future reality. You will be like Jesus. And the compelling nature of the Christian life is this, that God will use the all things to get you there. That through the things that are not good, through the things that are wrong, that are evil, God, who is a powerful, will work through those things to produce in you such a glorious life that you will be like Jesus because of those things that are wrong and are, are evil, are not good. There's a story of goodness being written. And we know that. And here's how we know that. In Romans 8, it says, all things work together for your good. All things, it says. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, in the second to last chapter, Revelation 21, we see John has this vision and how uh, history culminates and the beginning of eternity kind of begins. And what we see is actually heaven comes down to earth. And what we see is that John writes and says, I heard this voice from the throne saying, the dwelling place of God is with man. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will wipe every tear from their eye. And the old order of things have passed away. And then it goes on to say, Revelation 21, verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Romans 8, All things will be made for your good. Revelation 21, I am making all things new. They are the exact same word in the same form, copy and pasted. Romans 8 and Revelation 21. And because of that, you can know your story in the Romans 8 of the now. The things that you don't understand, the things that are not good, plug into the fact that Jesus will say something about them as he corrects them and puts those all things that you can't understand that are evil and that are wrong, that good will be produced for you, he will put those things in their place. The future informs the present because of that. Now, one kind of plug. Um, it would be uh, tone deaf to go to someone and say, God is working everything for your good and whatever is in your life right now. And you're suffering, God is working for your good. You can hear the lack of the pastoral sensibilities in that. And so as you love others, living in this story of goodness, that yes, all things will be made new, and all things now that doesn't make sense plug into that. The truth of all things being made for your good is to serve in the background and not the headlines as you love people in their suffering. At the same time, in your own life, in your suffering, in the all things that don't make sense now and one day will have um, the words of Jesus spoken to them and put in their place. It's important that it's reversed. 
that the fact that God will make all things work for your good is supposed to be in the headlines in your own mind, in your own heart, as you preach it to yourself. Because when you say that, everything else will begin to fall in place. Not that it's easy, but because it is hard. As we love others, we don't hit them with the anvil of the truth. We have truth inform our presence with them. And with ourselves, we have ourselves and our own mind and heart shaped by the truth that God is, has us in a story of goodness as he's leading us to the fact that he will have the last say of everything. What makes the story of goodness good, in fact, is that nothing will go untouched by Jesus. Nothing. Nothing in your life will go untouched by Jesus. Not the way your body is, not the way your heart is, not your addictions, not the way you uh, long to be someone, not the way you, the, the words you've been shaped by and formed by, nothing. No relationship, nothing. Everything is on the table for Jesus to speak into. And if it's good, it will be restored. And if it's bad, it will be vanquished. We're living in a story of glory. A story of goodness. In college, I um, once a week went over to a 50-year-old man's house named Dick. And Dick was this college football player. And he was lean and mean, and um, he was just uh, a titan of a man. His, his, he had these pictures of him water uh, skiing. Handsome and fit. At the age of about 26, Dick found out that he had MS. And so about uh, kind of double that time at the age of 50 is when I, uh, he and I crossed paths. And every Tuesday morning in college, I would go over to his house about 6, 15 a.m. And I would go and I would help Dick out of bed and, and put him in his chair. And I'd take him to the kitchen and I'd feed him breakfast. And then I would take him and uh, help him use the restroom. Then I'd help him take a bath, get him out put him in his bed, get him dressed for the day. Get all the things ready in his chair, his water bottle, his, his, his phone, everything prepped and ready for him. And after about two or three hours of doing this for him, uh, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes the, the, the day ahead of me got, uh, began to uh, roll in my head. The gears started to, to really warm up and I thought, I really, I've got this and this and that. I began to really want to get out of there. And about every, every time, Dick would say, can we pray? I'm like, yeah. In the back of my mind, I think I have to get out of here. And I would say, dear Lord, thank you for this day. In your name, amen. And even after that, Dick would look at me and say, how can I be praying for you? Well, I could commend his uh, heartfelt desire for me to feel loved and cared for through prayer. What that does to me and what it should do to us is the story of goodness that Dick was living in is that he understood the all things of the now, like multiple sclerosis that left him in a wheelchair. Jesus will say something to that. In Revelation 21. And in fact, for Dick... The beauty of it is he became more and more like Jesus because he knew the best thing I can give away is Jesus. 
And it came in the form of, how can I pray for you? Because that's the only thing I can give you. The journey that you and I are on is a journey that makes us understand the only thing we need is the Savior that has purchased us. And the only thing we can give out is that very same Savior. Because he's the God that says, in the now, I'm working. And in the future, I will vanquish the things that I am bringing goodness in, even as they are not right now. We're standing in the middle of the story of goodness. That God works all good things for us, and we're moving towards goodness. But lastly, as we zoom in, we see how that really plays itself out in the process of goodness. There's a God of goodness who works all things, and there's a story that ends well. But here in the now, as we live between the now and the future, what does it look like? And we have a God who's a God of process. He's a God of sequencing. He's a God of order. He's a God that says, I'm taking you from one point to the other point, and goodness will be what you have in your life. And it's in this, verse 30. And those that he's predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Now, we're going to spend four minutes on this, and we could spend the next four decades on it. But these are big theological phrases that plug into this thing called the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, how God makes the salvation purchased by Jesus real to you over a sequencing and a progressive process in your whole life. That because Jesus has purchased things for you, it will become real to you through these stages. But before you were born, actually, Jesus knew you. Ephesians 1, 4 says, For... Uh, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless and love before him. And because of that, all things work together for your good. He didn't just predestine you, but he called you. He said, my arm is far enough to reach and grab you and take what was dead and make it alive and bring it near to me. And because you are near to me and you are alive now, all things work together for your good. And also, he says, actually, I'm going to make you uh, justified. That actually, in the courtroom of God, you're going to stand before God the Father, and he doesn't just say, take a walk, you're fine. He looks at you with a smile because you have the record of Jesus, the one who's purchased you and had the arm reach and bring you near to him. And because he looks at you with a smile, God the Father says, I will make all things work together for your good. And then lastly, your story ends in glory because that's the last piece glorification, you're glorified, where you're a fully restored body, fully restored mind, fully restored spirit, you're integrated, you're healed, you're all together. And even in that moment, more than any other moment, all things work together for your good. Because you can't be glorified unless you taste death. All things are not good, and yet all things God works for good. And one thing that is not good is death. It's the top of the list. And yet through the sting of death, 
Jesus purchases for you the full salvation, the full knowledge, the full goodness that God has for you. The paradox of the Christian life is that you will never know more life until you taste death. As Mark mentioned, uh, Tim Keller passed away uh, this past Friday morning. Uh, Just a titan of understanding uh, what the gospel really is and how it actually is the best news out there and how it humbly makes itself manifest in our lives. And in an interview with our very own Leah Hutcherson, a member here, uh, he told her this. He says, I do know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened. And when I die, I will know that resurrection too. And right before he tasted that very resurrection to his family, he said this. He said, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. As we sit in a process of goodness being ours, all the goodness that Jesus has purchased for you, becoming your own, you will never know it more than when you die. And the process of goodness culminates in having everything Jesus purchased for you is yours through a thing that is on borrowed time, death. And when you understand and grasp that you're moving in a process toward goodness, what you will then look at death and say is, there's nothing I lose. There's nothing I'm leaving behind. In fact, everything's beginning. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. That's what Paul is trying to have us grasp here because that's the very thing that Jesus has purchased for you and for I. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. And that doesn't just shape your death. That shapes all of your life until then. Because we have a God of goodness. Let's pray. Lord, this is the best news we maybe could ever hear. That you work everything for our good, all because you are a God who will bring good and restore all things, just as you are united to us and we united to you. And yet, Lord, I don't think I'm alone when I say I just feel half-hearted. And so by the power of your spirit, would you make the truth of your goodness, the fact that you are good, seep into us so that everything we may take on, every river that we may ford, every single season that is filled with fog, we feel the touch of the Savior with us that says, I'm writing a story that's built for glory. And may we march with you there. Pray this, Jesus, because you have walked out of the tomb. May we walk out with you because you have a story for us that is good. We pray in your name.
Amen. And may we march with you there. Pray this, Jesus, because you have walked out of the tomb. May we walk out with you because you have a story for us that is good. We pray in your name. Amen.